Hi there, this is Structured Rambling, a podcast about literature, ideas in literature, the texts, the themes, the virtues and beyond. My name is Paul, I'm a reader, a writer, a teacher, a fan, and a pig owner. So this is Paul, and today I'm talking to you uh, about... Well, I'm talking to you about something I'm going to talk to you about a lot, and it is going to be a quandary to define, but I'm going to talk to you about a text that is fairly simple to look at, not hard to enjoy. I'm going to talk to you about historical fiction. So historical fiction is a tricky beast because it's fictional, but it's also historical. I hope I haven't lost you. The problem is, is how much of history is true. And I'm not being a conspiracy theorist, but I mean, we know that history is written by the victors. We also know that you go far back enough, it gets pretty hard to find accurate sources. You go far back enough, it gets pretty hard to find stuff that doesn't include magic and mysticism as history. You could debate this all day. There are things that have happened in the past 20 years, 5 years, today, that it's all about perspective and who sees one side of an event and who sees another side of an event and the difference of interpretation. Fictionalizing history automatically assumes that you are allowing the author to convey to you a version of history that you are going to accept. And all you have to do is take any historical fiction or historical, historically based film, and you've got yourself an argument as to how events are depicted. And the real brain buster is if literature is based on life, then everything is essentially historical fiction. And it's the worst when something actually tries to be. But enough of that. It's probably not time to talk about that. I'll probably save that for something a little bit more controversial. This piece is historical, but heavy on the fiction. It's a funky little genre, because every depiction is based on real events, inspired by true events, or a retelling of true events, whatever true means. It's basically giving itself a license to to lie in the telling. Historical fiction is different than biography movies or things like that, because historical fiction never claims not to be lying, It may simply set itself up in a historical time and place, but then the fiction is there. That's what you call like a period piece for a movie. But it's the same for a fiction. In my slow slog uh, since the beginning of the end of the world of reading or rereading the great works in a chronological order, this July, I, I... when I was still in a time where I could read it at a fairly decent clip. September has slowed me down, obviously, but I shall persevere. And I'm also rereading the text that I'm teaching, and I'm loving every second of that. So as life goes, I've got a good one. But anyways, in my rereading of those great works, uh, I had just finished The Romans in July. There was some great philosophy by Marcus Aurelius, who I, I do enjoy, although I'm not a stoic myself, but I dig his stuff. There was some tolerable epic poetry by Virgil and Ovid. Um, There was the New Testament, which is the New Testament. 
And there was something that I'm still reading, uh, Edward Gibbons, The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. I don't know. If you're a frequent listener, you may have noticed that I mentioned last week I'm still reading War and Peace, and I'm mentioning this week that I'm still reading The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. I feel those both may take a bit, and, I, and, and, and I'm okay with that. They're large. So as a treat... On the side, in July, I was rereading uh, Robert Graves' 1934 delightful historical romp, I, Claudius. You may not have heard of this book, and probably not the historical figure who serves as its titular character and narrator, Claudius himself. It's a British book by a British writer, and there's something about England that they have far more knowledge and I'd say interest in ancient Rome than we do over here in North America. I have a theory that they study a fallen empire to make themselves feel better about losing their own. Your average North American, and yes, I'll freely admit that I've lowered the average of what your average North American is by including all of North America, particularly the middle. Your average North American knows less about Rome than your average Brit. We know Julius Caesar, and we know he was murdered. We may not know how to associate him with the salad or the drink, but what we do know about him is usually thanks to William Shakespeare. We know uh, the Egyptian Cleopatra, but her relationship to Caesar, her relationship to Mark Antony, it's not as likely. And despite the fact that July is named for Caesar, his first name, keep up, we know almost nothing about the far greater emperor who was his heir and gives his name to August. Claudius really was the step-grandson of Emperor Augustus. In the novel, he's the grandson of Livia, Augustus's second wife, and thus he's in line for the throne but at some distance. Little moment here. I said Augustus's. I struggled with what to choose to say there. Because Augustus, like Jesus and any other Julius, old historical name, uh, ancient names typically is a definer in any style manual you look at, like the Oxford style manual or the Chicago style manual or the Canadian style manual, says you do not need to put another S after the apostrophe of a possessive of such names. But how does one speak it and show possession? He's Augustus' step-grandson. It's tricky, so I'm gonna I'm gonna err on the side of silliness, and uh, but it's what we most do, and I'll say Augustus's. I don't even know if I'm gonna say he, he possesses anything again, but I did there. Anyways, so we got Claudius. Claudius is the step grandson of uh, Augustus, and uh, so is related to Tiberius, his uncle. He's got a brother named Germanicus, a nephew named Caligula. Perhaps you've heard of him as well as the uh, women and children who are all real people of history. I'm not skipping over the women and children. They're important too. But this is the list of men who are emperors at some time or another in history and in this book. 
The reason Graves' book is a masterwork of historical fiction is he takes the family and empire details and after the long series of civil wars that took Rome from the Republic to an empire and he humanizes them. Augustus, Rome's first real sitting emperor, Caesar didn't really get to be emperor. He, for all intents and purposes, was, but got murdered, uh, and then there was a civil war that Octavian, who became Augustus, uh, won, and thus got to sort of reap the rewards uh, that that Julius Caesar had. So, reaping and sowing. Good. Yes, got it. So, Graves humanizes Augustus. He becomes a proud old man who's completely controlled by his much more intelligent wife. That wife, Livia, becomes a manipulator and a lethal plotter. Tiberius is remembered as a bad emperor. We are given the whys in this book. Caligula, who is remembered as a sociopath, is depicted as a sociopath, but we are given some of the rationale as to why. He humanizes history. Graves gives us little details as to why people are the way they are, making them fully formed characters. It's fictional, but it's plausible. Germanicus is noble, and history said so, or at least that's how he's remembered. He's remembered favorably, and how he came to die is also plotted out. His death was controversial then, it's controversial now. And then there's Claudius himself. Claudius was kind of a non-factor until he became emperor. Spoiler, but if I'm telling you a story that's based on 2,000-year-old history, what are you going to do? Claudius was an overlooked member of Augustus... There it is, another possessive! ...of Augustus' household and hated by his mother and by his grandmother Livia because he is crippled. This might not be historical. This is true to the novel. He ha- he's crippled. He's born uh, with a with a lame leg, and he stutters. But he is a genius, and kind of stays behind the scenes, writing history, studying history. But obviously, doesn't work well in public because of that stutter. Claudius is treated poorly because of these disabilities. And and keep in mind, this is a family that often sees itself as reincarnated gods or better yet if you die you're gonna be made into a deity and always respected never questioned and so truly arrogant and anything less than them is subhuman they're like the kanye wests of the old world claudia sits in the background reading writing learning only respected by the virtuous members of his family like Germanicus. So he is generally ignored and able to avoid the constant plotting and murder that follows. People are dropping like flies in this book, and it's always fairly suspicious, always probably because they ingested something. Claudius establishes himself as canny and careful and as a subtle survivor. The structure of the book is generally a detailed account of history 
um, and mostly an overview. It, it, there's a lot of bird's eye view storytelling to this um, of the reign of Augustus, then of the reign of Tiberius, then the reign of Caligula, Caligula, and then at the end of the book, Claudius himself becomes emperor. There's even a sequel, Claudius the God. But it's given flesh by each character being a true personality, especially the dark empress Livia and the sadistic Caligula. Graves knows the history of the early empire so well, and he makes great use of resources to do it, but he spins a good yarn, and he writes the heck out of this novel. He doesn't just do history. Everything comes to us from Claudius's interpretation, but at the same time, oh, Claudius's did the same thing again, got that little hook apostrophe there. But anyways, it comes from Claudius's interpretation, but Claudius doesn't out and out say things most of the time. He implies by 30 pages into the book, you see Augustus is kind of past his prime and kind of a doting old man. You see Livia as not somebody to be trifled with. And uh, I don't think Caligula is even born by then, but Caligula, you very, you very quickly go, this kid's going to be a problem. With most historical fiction, and with films claiming to be historical, you've got to take the amount of artistic license into consideration. For the sake of the narrative, Braveheart is on the same level of history, roughly, as the Flintstones. Graves' novel and its sequel are about as historical as you can ask. He just takes what really happened on what the sketchy, sparse, and biased sources show, and he fills in the human element as he sees fit, but still tells you the history. In fact, you can read this book in parallel with reading whatever quote-unquote true history of Rome you read, and I think you can't really... There's very few times you get confused. The death of Germanicus is maybe one of them, but then that's where the bias and the confusion are. He can only do so much. Here's the sort of point where he must invent for the sake of the narrator, for the sake of the narration, for the sake of the narrative. We know Germanicus was set to replace Tiberius as emperor. Germanicus was a a successful campaigner and very popular with the army, which is just basically a straight line to the throne in ancient Rome. He died of a suspicious sickness. He was probably poisoned. We know it was common for people in this era to die young, but um, the elite generally used this method of removing each other. A little bit of poison, bump off your rivals. Graves makes Empress Livia the great poisoner of this story. She's always manipulating something behind the scenes. She subtly eliminates several rivals to better her own branch of the family in effect for herself uh, in an attempt to be deified herself. The The death of Germanicus is one of the only moments where I know for sure Graves is caught between two questions. Because there are differing versions of where he died. Some, Germanicus, died in Germany. I know that sounds obvious, but you take that kind of a name after you've triumphed there or something like that. Graves has Germanicus in the east. His house 
is succumbing to these curses and spirits and there's dead chickens and and a mysterious illness plaguing him it is implied that this is the work of the child caligula germanicus's own son already off to the start of his sadism and at one point right before she dies empress livia actually tells Claudius who she was responsible for poisoning and who she wasn't. And she didn't do Germanicus in. Some historians, like I said, have Germanicus dying in the West, in Germania, on campaign. It's a mysterious death, probably poison, yes. And his, his ambitious wife, Agrippina, is, even though she's the, the mother of Caligula, but she gets placed kind of against him. And this is all a continent away from where Graves says it. In both cases, Agrippina ends up on the bad side of Livia. Caligula is probably behind it. But in the German version that are in some of the historical annals, Caligula isn't even there at the time. Let's not forget that though the Roman sources were better than some of the forthcoming medieval sources, they're still sources of 2,000 years ago as well. What Graves does masterfully in this book is broad sweeps of history and then he sort of tightens up on one to have dialogue characters interacting and that's kind of fun it's a masterful game he plays he presents the epic to advance the history but when necessary he hones right in on claudius's personal interactions with these giants of history late in the book when his grandmother livia is very old they have two interactions that are given to us mostly in full. One of them I've already alluded to, or I guess I didn't allude to it. I told you directly about it. Livia shares all of her secrets with him, hoping to exploit his help for her end goal. In another, she reminds him of his oaths to her. These are tender, crafted moments showing us that Robert Graves is capable of much more than just accounts of dates and events. Let's keep in mind, the man was, first and foremost, a poet. Well, maybe not foremost, but definitely first. First and some most, a poet. So, is that the best way to write a historical fiction? Really lean heavily on the history. No. Graves understands that it is a show-don't-tell game. And if you give in too much to your research... You are going to alienate your audience, bore your audience, and make them go, well, why aren't I just reading a history book? But you can tell your audience not enough. Um, sometimes there are references made in historical fiction to things going on in the bigger world that are well-known to experts of that historical time. Things like the Crusades, maybe, or the the Muslim invasion of Spain, or whatever. Yes, those are both medieval. I will not apologize for probably the most historical fiction i read and know about being medieval it's my stuff coming after rome i'm going to get excited about it but it is a tricky game to balance craft and history i claudius robert graves 1934 holds up just fine totally encourage you to read it this is the first of many asides in the structured variety of structured rambling to talk about historical fiction. Thank you for listening. I'll talk to you soon.